Hello, everyone, and welcome to Your Owners. We meet live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Daylight Time. My name is Vic Sinise, and I'm the host for today's show. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can learn more about us by visiting our website at yourownerse.com. Now, our first half hour will be devoted to general questions. and our second half hour, we're going to take a deeper dive into a subject. Today's subject is going to be BPH treatment in the office. We're happy to have Dr. Herbert User to present on the Resume and Eurolift procedures. To submit a question, simply click the Q&A button and type in your question. And uh, I'm going to take it away and let Lori introduce herself real quick here. There we go. Lori, go ahead. Hi, I'm Lori Atkinson. I've been in neurology for 24 years. I currently work at Northwestern in Illinois at, <clears throat> excuse me, at Delmore <clears throat> in Geneva. And I've been a certified nurse, <clears throat> excuse me, certified urology nurse um, since 2003. Okay, very good. So we're going to start off the day a little different than we have in the past. Now, this is something that uh, um, I encourage people to do. If there's something that you hear at one of our meetings and suddenly, you know, you say, oh, I wish I would have asked that question. Just send it to us. There's a questions and answer spot to go ahead and send that. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and read this off for you right now. Let's see. I got to do one thing quickly here. Otherwise, I can't see it. Um, so this came in. Hello, Vic. This is a question about our last discussion. So I hope it's okay to ask some ask some clarity on office anesthesia. Again, always good to send us a question. In today's discussion, they attended that last week, you presented research showing how lidocaine glidogel is more effective in pain management if used almost immediately, as opposed to waiting up to 10 minutes for the lidocaine and sterile water mixture. Also, your research showed a wait time of six minutes for best results. At least that's how I remembered your explanation of the research. And I presented a couple different things, so that's probably part of the confusion. Um, in the SUNA Urologic Nursing Corps Curriculum, first edition, it says to be, and I quote, to be beneficial, the lubricant, 2% lidocaine gel, should be indwelling in the urethra at least 15 minutes. And she gives that page for the curriculum. I'm, I was glad to hear about the almost immediate use of glidogel pre-procedure, but this complicates things a little. Can you please clarify regarding your research from today and the textbook information? Thank you for this resource, Vic. I really appreciate your, your um, Saturday mornings. Um, great question. A, a lot of good things there. Let's tackle a few of those. So in my discussion, I had said that there was a lot of debate over all this. So I think it helps if we talk a little bit about what type of evidence there is when you're looking at research papers. And they divided into three grades, grade A, B, and C. Now, grade A is what you really would like to find. That means you have high quality evidence, a well-conducted randomized clinical trial, and exceptional strong observational studies. That would be the best thing in the world. Um, grade B is not bad, moderate quality evidence. You have some randomized controlled um, trials with some weakness, generally strong observational studies. Grade C, low quality evidence, observational studies that provide conflicting information or design problems such as small sample size. Kind of remember that last one, C. Um, also, that's a thing that is allowed in research is expert opinion. Now, expert opinion is a statement achieved by a panel consensus 
that is based on members' clinical training, experience, knowledge, and judgment, and for which there are no published evidence. And then there's clinical principle, a statement about a component of clinical care that is widely agreed upon by urologists or other clinicians, and for which there may or may not be evidence in the medical literature. Now, we go to our article that was uh, the one that she was referring to that I presented, and that was the um, lidocaine gel. And what it basically stated was looking at the gel versus a liquid mixture. They did a study of 10 minutes and immediate. And with the gel, the immediate worked better. And that's kind of where I was taking my evidence. I also used some clinical judgment in the fact that I personally had some dental work done with lidocaine, gums being a mucous membrane, very similar to urethra, and could tell you that it worked immediately for me. Also, I've done a lot of catheters in my uh, experience with it, and I have used it immediately, and patients seem to have plenty of comfort with it. But with that said, that study was only 147 patients, far from a, a, a big randomized clinical trial. At best, it's probably grade C or low-quality evidence. And if you do a lot of research, you'll find there's many papers that have conflicting reports, um, such as this, this one where they looked at, and this may be the one that they were quoting in the manual, 400 um, in the study, and they concluded 15 minutes of dwell time was ideal. So very similar to what you read in the manual. Um, and again, there's a I, uh, article back from 1994 in the Journal of Urology that supports that it doesn't even work. Lidocaine gel versus regular gel, there's no difference. So the bottom line is, is as you kind of read through all these, you're going to be able to find stuff that supports you and stuff that doesn't support you. And that's where your clinical judgment comes in. Um, this is another article that I found where um, I thought it was interesting. They did two studies and looked at immediate versus a two-minute delay and really didn't see any significant difference between the, the immediate use and two minutes. And obviously, it's not the 15 minutes. But the point is, there's a lot of studies out there. <clears throat> However, they conflict with each other. I can't find or didn't find, at least in my research, any big, large, randomized clinical trial that would support either one of those. So what do you do? What where are you where are you left? Well, you're left with expert opinion and clinical principle, or at the very least, you're using some grade C evidence. And that's basically where I kind of left things um, last week. And, and hopefully it's a good explanation to why I stated what I stated based on my own judgment and based on the research I did and why there's a conflict and why you might say, well, this is what it says in the, the journal. I mean, isn't that the most uh, you know up-to-date information? Well, actually that, that book, by the way, is I think undergoing its second or third edition now. So books are always several years in, you know, it takes years to make a book. So the data that by the time they go to press is probably two, three years old. That's why they have to go and update them. So yeah, at best, I can't argue it, but I can argue against it too. I can't prove I can't prove it. So anyway, I hope that that answered your questions. And if you have any other questions, please feel free to go ahead and submit your questions. Um, this is your time. Looking at the Q&A box to see if anybody has any questions, comments, concerns. Um, it's a beautiful day today. I know it's Labor Day weekend. 
I uh, wasn't expecting a huge audience. I'm glad to see all of you that have shown up. It's great. The um, We do record this, and that's part of the, the beauty is that even if it doesn't have a big audience today, the future audiences will be there. I will throw something out here. If anybody in the audience feels they would like to be a panelist, you can always volunteer to be a panelist by submitting the form on our website. But today I'll make the unique opportunity. If anybody wants to be a panelist, send that in the Q&A. Hey, promote me to panelist. I'll be glad to move you over to the panel from the attendees. It's your opportunity if you want to say something. And if not, you're enjoying sitting back, that's perfectly fine because that's what we built this for. Um, we've had some some of you that have shown up for the after party. And uh, what do you think, Lori? How's the after party going? I love the after party because you could just let it loose. You can ask anything you want. It's just, just it's, you know, just laid back and you can, <clears throat> excuse me, you can just, just ask anything you want. I kind of think it's like when uh, you go to the meeting and if, after the end of the talk, everybody kind of mills around outside the, the room and, you know, what'd you think about what he said? Or, you know, you kind of ask these other questions or you, you find that speaker and you didn't really want to put your hand up because you didn't want to look like an idiot, which nobody looks like an idiot, but no. you always think that, right? <laughs> and so anyway, you, you, uh, you go out in the hallway and you say, hey, by the way, what you know, you mean by this? Or what did you say there? Um, so, and it's I, a great way to get to know people, you know, the yeah. last after party was great. We got to yeah. know some people in other States. It was great. Yeah. So it, it is, uh, and you know, I, this, this format is, is far from written. We're, we're learning every time we do something, we're trying something a little different. Um, so again, you know, whatever you want to see. Let us know if we're doing something good. Let us know if we're doing something you don't like. Let us know. Um, I toyed around with at the beginning whether we should banter with each other and have that off screen because we can do that or have it on screen. And wow, everybody said, hey, we like what you're talking about. So we, we're leaving. That's part of the show now. Um, I do cut it out of the, the pre-recorded, the ones that you watch on demand. Um, those are more of just watch the program. But I think for those that want to join live, hey, it's fun. Let's let's continue that. And anybody that's in the audience that wants to join that after party, just go to the website, euronurse.com and click that big red button that says after party. We'll love to hang out with you. Um, now, if we don't have any questions, do you have anything that you wanted to talk about, Lori? I don't see any questions yet. People might be thinking over what they want to say. I actually do. And this came up this, this past week because... The BCG shortage is a reality to our office right now. And we've been okay so far. But now um, one of our doctors presented, you know, from the AUA that one third BCG is appropriate. And so I just wanted everybody's opinion on that because, you know, we may have to do that because we are really short now. And I just wanted other um, others' opinions on that. Yeah. I, uh, anybody that has an opinion, feel free to just throw that into the Q and A and I'll read it off the, uh, we've been using one third BCG in, um, in the past for patients that have had issues with tolerance. So sometimes full strength BCG, they come back and they're like, man, I've got terrible urinary frequency after that. And you're debating whether you should continue it or not. So we've, you know, there's a protocol out there that, that 
um, supported that. I can't remember the study, but um, anyway, so we cut it down to one third and found that a lot of patients could tolerate the lower dosages and did fine. So I think there's so I some rationale. I, the question to you, Vic, is that, um, so if you do the one third, do you have other patients at the, so you don't waste the whole vial? That's, that, that would be ideal, especially right now, because we don't yeah. want to be wasting it. So I think it's a scheduling situation. Um, back in the past, I have to tell you, it was just wasted. You had to document that you're wasting it too. Um, that was important um, because of charging, you know, for for charges on that. Um, that'd be a great one to ask John Lynn if, if he, um, for sure. when, when he joins us, because he's done a lot of stuff with billing. <clears throat> I know that there's some codes that you're, you're supposed to do when you have to waste something. So that you yeah, can be we just don't want to waste it because yeah. we're but like, yeah, just for the yeah. I mean, we're probably doing eight to ten BCGs a week, and we're down to like twenty-four vials. And it's you know the allocation for our office is only two per week, and the pharmacy gets an wow. allocation. Yeah, it's bad, and the allocation for the pharmacy was six, dropped to three because they just don't have it. And so it's getting really difficult to get it for our patients. Yeah. So in that case, definitely, you know, the um, one third would be better than not being able to treat somebody, I think. Um, but I think definitely we need to get an expert um, to try to talk a little bit about that. I know Chicago Metro had a, uh, a Zoom meeting where we brought that to, you know, let's talk about it and what people were doing. And it was kind of a lot of that information got came out that people were saying, yeah, you know, just use the one third. That's reasonable. Um, I have seen it even, you know, written down to as little as one tenth of a dose. Now that was for wow. tolerance reasons. So also there's some protocols where you mix interferon with the BCG um, to give it like a boost and you can use one third BCG with the interferon. I don't remember the exact uh, dose on that. We unfortunately never had really great success with the interferon, and I don't know that it's it's stood the uh, test. We haven't, of time. I haven't done that in years, probably now. Yeah, <clears throat> with the interferon, but um, the so I you know our other I guess I just I'm curious to see what everybody else thinks about the alternatives like gemcitabine. Yeah, um, so the we, my, do have, we do have a couple of people that have chimed in here for us, so I will go ahead and read that for you. Um, so hello everyone. Great to be part of this again on a Saturday morning. Love the networking and learning opportunity. Thanks again. Um, that was just, uh, from anonymous. John did chime, chime in with the JW modifier appended to be unused portion on the claim line for BCG. Thanks, John. I, I knew you would know the answer. <laughs> um, Melanie Waddington said regarding the one third dose. The vial is so small, I find it difficult to get the exact minimum dose. If I end up not giving the minimum one-third dose, I question effectiveness. I find giving half dose with subsequent patients makes me feel the patient is receiving adequate dosing. Huh, now that's interesting. Um, what's your thoughts on, like, would you think a half dose? Or I don't know of any studies with half dosing, but. Um, I, we did do half dosing for a while, um, you know, at another office when, cause obviously BCG shortage has been years now mm -hmm. and we did do half dosing and it seemed to work out well. The third dosing, which is one of my providers that came out with, I'm like, it's hard to get, 
you know, number one, three people in at the same time, because it's only good for, I think, Mm. four hours, if I'm not mistaken. So it's hard to get people in. And then you have to check their urine beforehand. And if they have an infection or they have, you know, symptoms, then you're wasting it anyway. So. Yep. Yep. I agree. There can be a lot of issues. Um, Yeah. John Lynn also said reduce dose BCG for intolerance and scarcity. Um, I agree. Hey, John, you may not have been around when I made the announcement. If you'd like to come on as a panelist, I can promote you to panelist and you could talk live. Um, if you're not set up for that, that's fine. But just uh, send me a, a question and answer uh, that you would like to be uh, upgraded. I'll be glad to do that. Um, but yeah, I think that BCG would be a great subject for you know going forward to, to have to tackle to discuss with people. <clears throat> what they're doing out there and try to maybe get an audience could be a, a, a real good after party talk too. sometime if people want to get on and just really kind of hash out what they're doing to, to get through this craziness. Cause I don't th- think these shortages are going away. You know, I no. think it's going to be a, a big issue going forward. So and we have something now that <clears throat> we just started doing is, I don't know if anybody has experience with the um, gem cytobine and docetaxel. Have you heard of that, Vic? Um, I'm sorry. I, I, I was reading. I so, the gems, too, so the gem. So the I was reading a question about gemcitabine. So. so gemcitabine and docetaxel. So uh-huh. apparently, so what we did for this particular patient downtown Chicago, he came to us because um, he's more local to our office. And he does gemcitabine and, and docetaxel, which gemcitabine, we have to put it in his bladder for 90 minutes. He stays in the office. And then we followed up with like an infusion of dose taxol. And that's a big thing downtown right now in Chicago. Huh. So I was just wondering if anybody had experience with that. Yeah, I, I personally don't. Uh, the question that we were getting was in terms of giving gemcitabine, won't you need a chemo certified nurse to give it? No. We give it all the time. It's just like BCG. You just have to wear the proper PPE with the chemo, you know, gown, the gloves, mask, things like that. But no. And and I'm not sure it's being, you know, I I won't, wouldn't think that this is being done outside of an oncology or urology setting. So we're talking about nurses that should have the training and how to administer these medications. Um, Now we don't mix it in our office. So we have a pharmacy that mixes it. Right. Um, or, you know, eventually we're going to be, we have another office that's opening and we don't have a pharmacy on the premises. Um, so that's something that you can get from, um, an outside pharmacy and they can deliver it and it lasts for a lot longer, like BCG. It's, it's, it's a lot longer. It's like, I don't even remember what they said, but that's something we're considering right now is because once they deliver it, it can sit in storage for, I think, two weeks or four. I I honestly don't remember, but it's a lot longer. Um, So Melanie Waddlington um, said intravesical administration does not require chemo RN certification. IV administration does require chemo certification. So thanks for right. clearing that up, Melanie. That's great. All right. I think we may have 
gotten all of our comments and questions from the audience. So at this point, if there's no other questions, um, or if you think of something, go ahead and put it in the Q&A. But we're going to switch over to our actual presentations. So we're going to talk about BPH in the office, and Dr. User is going to be presenting on the use of Resume and Eurolift, the two things that we do in our office. And we'll take questions after that. If you think of something while you're listening, feel free to throw it in the Q&A because we'll be discussing after his talk. So let's get Dr. User on now. Good morning. Uh, today we're going to discuss uh, an update on office urology procedures primarily. And uh, I think the best place to start is BPH. There's a lot of BPH surgery that has moved from the operating room to the office setting. And I'm sure many of you are seeing this uh, primarily with both Eurolift and Resume. Um, I'll discuss both of them, but primarily Resume. And uh, honestly, because I've done both of them for a while and I have transitioned to being a primarily Resume um, physician. And I'll discuss that as to why I, I feel that way. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other necessarily, but uh, my own personal experience has led me to, um, to do more resume. So let's get started. And there's a few other office procedures we'll discuss and how we're doing them. So it hopefully it'll be somewhat informative. Uh, so BPH, obviously this is just a quick, uh, slide to discuss that there are sort of three ways of handling it. There are the um, conservative measures, and I give all of my patients what I call the bladder irritants diet. And it seems like common sense to most of us, but a lot of patients may not necessarily realize that the two pots of coffee they're drinking a day are causing all of these problems. And you'd be surprised how many patients uh, walk away thinking, oh, I didn't realize. Uh, and there's some other training issues, and but it's primarily the list of things to stay away from. The second line agents I'll talk about in a moment are the medications, which I think are much and overly maligned today. Obviously, there's the office procedures and missing from those from that slide are some of the other newer procedures, things like prostate artery embolization, and then there's the little uh, the new uh, prostatic stent. Um, there's uh, the old school microwave, which I actually still think has a place. And then there's the operative procedure. Now, I just left the slide in, and I'm just going to tell you that I've stolen these slides uh, with permission. Uh, the Boston Scientific people were nice enough to give me their slide deck. Um, and I've deleted a lot of the junk that I, I didn't find useful or redundant, but I love the slide because I get this question all the time from the patients. What about saw palmetto? What about this? What about that? I, none of them have ever, ever been shown to be, to do anything. I think it's a disservice that what the, what the medicine and the FDA have done to our patients to leave them at the whims of these charlatans that try to convince them with late night Larry King commercials that they should be taking this junk. It's useless. It's all useless. None of it's ever been ever proven to do anything other than placebo. So any of my patients that ask me this, I like to take advantage of the opportunity to um, besmirch these nonsense therapies that don't do anything. And some of the patients will say, oh, I'm on Salplomato and it really helps. Well, guess what? That's a placebo effect. And that if they feel that way, I'm not going to talk them out of it. 
But if they're undecided or try and decide if they should be taking any of these things, I will tell them that. Now, I will tell them that certain dietary um, modifications, and I personally am a big believer in plant-based eating and eating lots of soy. There are some studies that show that um, a high soy diet um, and a low animal protein diet are good for BPH and prostate size and actually are related to PSA as well. It's a topic for another day, but if they are going to try to do anything that's non-pharmacologic or non-operative, uh, those dietary recommendations are going to take you a lot further than some bogus supplement. Now, what about the medications? Again, I think that there's a huge push from primarily the uh, Euroleft people, but also from the Boston Scientific people. Um, they're sponsoring a lot of these studies and, and whipping doctors up to telling you how terrible these medications are. And yes, they have side effects. Yes, you have to be careful and aware and take a good history and discuss things with the patients. But I have had patients, including my own father, um, who have been taking these medications for many years, very safely, very effectively, um, so alpha blockers are the mainstay of treatment. They work great. Uh, there are some issues with retrograde ejaculation. That's very common. And then some orthostatic issues as well. You have to be careful with these, uh, little old guys to not, uh, not knock them over. Um, but a lot of these newer studies that are starting to come out now, I think are very preliminary and I'm not basing the way I practice based on that. I know there are some physicians out there that have stopped offering um, medications as a frontline therapy. And honestly, I think that's a bit financially motivated. So um, I'm not saying that, that's, um, that it's a wrong way to practice. It's just not the way I'm practicing. Uh, the other biggie that we're using a lot of is uh, still our 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And obviously for bigger prostates, guys with the PSA over two, two and a half, they're going to get some benefit. It's not going to do much for the guys with the little prostates. The other way I use these medications is I tell the guys that it'll make their procedure last longer, whatever procedure they have, because it's going to, it's going to minimize the regrowth of the prostate. So I may take patients after procedures off of alpha blockers, but I'll tell them the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors are going to make it last longer. It's going to, and if you're not having any side effects, you may want to consider staying on it. It's also going to keep the PSA down. I have a lot of patients that have been biopsied five times and had the MRI and then the PSA continues to slowly go up because of prostate growth. And we put them on these and that's it. It's the end of the endless, you know, cycle of MRIs and biopsies for not for some of these guys with the really big land. So I like five out productase inhibitors is still a big part of my practice. Now let's talk about resume and uh, the in office BPH procedures. And I'll, I'll go through this again in um, a little more detail uh, sh in shortly, but the way I do the, all of my office procedures, 99% of them is a combination of a local block and nitrous. And uh, I'll get back to that in a moment. But what is resume? Basically, I tell the patients it's, it's like a cysto. And then through the scope, we're going to inject some steam therapy into the prostate. Um, and it works great. The retreatment rates are really low. The side effects are pretty minimal. The first few weeks are brutal. I tell the patients that 
I try to manage their expectations and, and warn them, you're going to get some dysuria and blood and frequency and dysuria and all of these things are going to definitely be much worse. The first two weeks, I make you worse. After that, things slowly improve. By the time we're at three or four weeks, you should be getting to be slightly better than you were before. And by the time I see them back at their three month, they're going to be significantly better. Now, I will tell you that part of the differentiation between Eurolift and Resume is the 90-day global. There is a 90-day global for Resume. So every one of these visits that you're seeing the patient back for the dysuria and checking pulse voids and such um, is going to be included in the global. Uh, with Eurolift, it is not. So that is, again, part of the perhaps the motivation that if you're on the fence and you like both treatments that, you know, may enter, enter into the decision-making process. Um, so let's go through a bit more detail. Uh, I'm going to show you this video because I do think it's pretty cool. There's just a few very short videos I'm going to play. ...in water vapor or steam. Clinical studies support that Resume relieves BPH symptoms safely and effectively, eliminating the need for BPH medications while also preserving sexual function. During each nine-second treatment, sterile water vapor is released throughout the targeted prostate tissue. When the steam contacts the tissue and turns back into water, all the stored energy is released, causing the cells to die. Over time, your body's natural healing response absorbs the dead cells, shrinking the prostate. With the extra tissue removed, the urethra opens, reducing BPH symptoms. Most patients begin to experience symptom relief as soon as two weeks, and maximum benefit may occur within three months. So we, we watched those short videos, and uh, let's just, I'm not going to belabor the point with these, um, with these studies, but essentially what we're showing you here is that the IPSS scores drop dramatically, the Qmax, how well how the force of stream works, um, quality of life improves, um, erectile function is, is minimally impacted, and really there is no impact. This is probably just the degradation uh, that one would expect uh, with age. Side effects from uh, the resume, basically what I've mentioned, obviously you can go into retention, clot retention, UTI, and we do see that periodically. You've got to be judicious with leaving the catheter in and how long you leave it in. Personally, leave it in for about three days, and I will take the catheter out, um, have the patients take the catheter out themselves at three days. Now, if, they're, they're, if they get a lot of treatments, um, say five or more treatments, then it's going to be longer. If they're in retention when they come in, it's going to be longer. If they're a very elderly, feeble patient that's perhaps in a wheelchair, it's going to be longer. And when I say longer, we're talking somewhere between one to two weeks. Um, the dysuria is brutal. It, it, it's brutal with any of these procedures, but with Resume in particular, it is, it is pretty rough for, those for that first week or two. So as long as the patients know, you can give them some peridium, you can give them some AZO, um, and that tends to work out pretty well. Um, here's the reason I, I really like the resume. Um, it's very durable. Uh, you know, and, and this is the, this is for your data. And I should have mentioned that the, on the prior slide as well, 
the four-year data is now five-year data that they've um, published and through the same study. And basically the retreatment rates are really good. Um, you're talking about a four or 5% um, surgical retreatment rate. And you're talking about perhaps an additional 5% of medication retreatment rate. Now, like I said, I personally um, gently encourage a lot of my patients to stay on their 5-alpha reductase inhibitors um, to maximize this uh, duration that the patients are going to be able to use this procedure and really any procedure that's ablative. Uh, so, you know, laser type procedures or TERP procedures as well. I think that works really well. Putting them back on an alpha blocker, some of the patients are going to need it. Now, some of the time it's because the procedure itself wasn't potent enough. And some of the times it's a patient with a hypertonic bladder and you've opened things up just enough with the resume to kind of get them going again, but they may need to stay on both. And sometimes I think it's a little unfair uh, to consider somebody a failure if they're still on the Flomax. Now, if it's somebody who, um, and I have a handful of patients like this that desperately did not want to go to the operating room or couldn't handle a trip to the operating room, but they were in retention um, and they had a hypotonic bladder, uh, I think it's a huge success for a patient like that to get them catheter-free, post-resume, but still on sometimes even double-dose tamsulosin and finasteride because it's, it's served its purpose. And so I, I don't think there's any reason to feel like that's necessarily a failure. Obviously, I try to wean everybody off of the res uh, that I've done the procedure on, off of alpha blockers especially. Um, and I do succeed the great majority of the time. And, and some of the patients are on double-dose tamsulosin. I keep everybody on their alpha blockers for those first two, three months. I don't think there's any reason to take them off sooner. I think there's still a lot of edema and, and resorption and they're really not even close to fully healed until you get to be about three months out. I really think that there continues to be benefit up to say six months out where perhaps the obstructive process is, is gone and the patients are getting a great stream, but a lot of the irritative symptoms stick around and the older the patients are, the more irritative symptoms they're gonna have, the longer those irritative symptoms are going to persist. Um, so the alpha blockers aren't designed to help with that, but they do help. And that's why I, I, I like to keep them on it. And then I'll wean slowly. I'll take them from two tamsulosin down to one. I'll tell them to um, do that for several weeks and then down to say one every other day and then to stop. Now, if, it, if it's anybody with even a marginal pulse void residual or a history of retention, I'm going to monitor them as they do that. So I may say, come back, you know, come back in a month, we'll go take you from two down to one. Uh, because if, if for some reason you've weaned, they wean themselves to zero and their pulse voids three, 400 again, uh, you know, you've put yourself behind the eight ball and it can be really hard to get those people um, voiding better again. I think once you develop that sort of chronic retention process, um, it can be a difficult thing uh, to do. All right, so what are some of the key take-home points uh, with Resume? Uh, it works really well um, if you've picked the right glands. And I didn't, didn't really discuss that in detail, but what are the right glands? I believe it's um, FDA approved for glands from uh, 30 to 80 grams in size. The really huge glands, neither of these minimally invasive therapies are gonna be really good. Um, the treatment is really durable for 
4.4% surgical retreatment rate. Um, sexual function is preserved, which is true for both of the minimally invasive treatments. Um, it works great for patients with the middle lobe and yes, Urolift is uh, approved for it. Um, I have treated some patients with Urolift with middle lobes. It's gotta be the right kind of middle lobe. It's gotta be mobile. Um, it has to be big enough that you can sort of swing it off to the side. It's technically difficult. Uh, the resume is technically a much easier procedure than the Urolift. It's pretty simple to just work your way right up to a middle lobe, put the needle in, blast it. And if it's a big middle lobe, I'll hit, sometimes hit it multiple times. I like to try to hit it um, for the bigger glands, one, one on one side, one on the other side. You really don't wanna over-treat middle lobes or median lobes because it's like uh, terping or lasering and fulgurating a bladder neck for too long. That's where the patients get the really nasty, gnarly, long-term irritative um, dysuria symptoms. So you want to make sure you treat it, um, but not over-treat it. I also like to um, sort of hit the middle lobes from the side to some extent. That way, a lot of the vapor energy isn't directed down into the bladder neck. It's, it's ablating um, the, uh, the middle lobe itself, just the BPH tissue. Uh, adverse side effects. I have had some patients have some uh, retention uh, more chronic retention and uh, even a couple episodes of uh, clot retention, uh, but most of the side effects are the, just the short-term irritative symptoms. They really do mostly resolve by three weeks. I think that they're they are being honest there. And um, with the chronic retention patients, and I've seen this with both Euroluft and Resume, and that I don't know why some patients. Uh, get this. Obviously, the more treatments and the more edema they are, more prone to it. I try to transition these people to intermittent catheterization um, if possible. Uh, it, but obviously, you got to pick the right patients for that. Um, so let's compare resume to medications. And again, this is just to show you that as much as medications are maligned, here's the combo therapy from the MTOP study. Um, alpha blockers plus 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, and it's um, probably even better for the larger glands. It's pretty close to resume. I mean, it's not quite as good, but it is, it is very good. Obviously, you're going to get some disease progression, uh, and they showed that in the MTAP study, uh, and you're not, you're not going to get that with, um, with any sort of an intervention like resume. All right, let's talk briefly about the Eurolift. And like I said, it's a great procedure. If you've got um, a good grasp of it and you've done lots of them, you're going to have more success. It is a little more technically challenging. Um, I started to run into more trouble with my larger glands. These patients would do fine for a year or two. And so as you can see here, there's a pretty decent retreatment rate. This study um, they're quoting a 13.6% surgical retreatment rate at five years. Um, now, there's the Eurolift people are going to dispute that. They've got different um, studies showing it's, it's, it's a bit lower than that, and it probably is a bit lower than that. Um, but you've got to be really careful with where those tabs end up. Um, I have had a few patients where the, ta where the tabs are visible and they 
either need to be clipped or they need to be resected in the operating room. So that's the huge bummer. If you do this procedure and you have a, a minor complication, you're stuck going to the operating room, basically. You can't just uh, say, let's just leave it alone. Those The tabs, if they are in contact with urine, will form stone. So uh, that's what I mean about being technically proficient. You really need to know where to put these tabs, the distance, how much pressure, um, the angle um, to really get the best treatment. Now, there are some guys out there that have done, you know, a thousand of these. There's a few of them and they will heavily promote um, this procedure saying that it's much better tolerated and the short-term irritative symptoms are better. And I do find that to be the case. Uh, the the short-term irritative symptoms are present. I do think they are a little bit better. Um, I also think that the catheter um, rates are lower and shorter. So typically after a Urolift, I will put a catheter in for a day and uh, remove the catheter the next day unless it's a big bloody mess, uh, which can happen sometimes. At any rate, I don't wanna go over, go over this in too much um, further detail other than saying that in terms of the anesthesia, uh, it's, I do it the same way. They get a good prostate block, they get a, um, a four point prostate block with, at both the base and the apex. Um, and then um, nitrous in the uh, office setting and the patients handle it quite well. This procedure is a bit longer. It's a little bit more torquing on the prostate. It's a bit more of a test of your prostate block and the nitrous. So I think you have to warn them of that. The beauty about the resume, they're just nine second treatments and it's typically you know four to seven treatments. Um, four or five is sort of my average, I would say. Um, and so the, uh, the Eurolift is gonna be a few minutes longer, uh, a few minutes more, uh, more discomfort. All right, thank you. Well, that was great. Um, just give me a second here. John Lynn, he has agreed to join us for this. Lori, can you unmute yourself? I actually did that to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> hey, John, welcome. Thank you. Uh, for the audience that doesn't know who you are, which is probably most of us here, would you just give us a brief introduction? Uh, my name is John Lynn. I am a urologist. I'm a sponge when it comes to information, and I really appreciate the opportunity to jump on kind of unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's what these kind of days are good for. I kind of thought that it's a good day to experiment with some other things that we haven't done in the past. So getting uh a speaker to present for us uh, remotely, we can do that. You know, we've got all sorts of options. And so um, in the Q&A, folks, is your chance to kind of comment and see what you uh, thought of it, send any questions you have. You've got three experts here willing to answer your questions. But uh, while we're waiting, John, what do you do in your office? What's your preference? Uh, when it comes to BPH, I prefer Eurolift. Uh, for many, many reasons. And uh, also, of course, medical therapy, and then you have the traditional TURP. I think it's probably pretty clear that Dr. User's preferences resume. Um, and we have, you know, I, I work with a group of five urologists, and you can probably get five different opinions as to what the best treatment options are. I think it's like anything else. Uh, whatever you're best at is probably your best option. That is exactly right. I yeah, think Lori? we tried resume. Um, I see better outcomes as a nurse with your lift. And the reason why is because when we did resume, 
they had a catheter for a lot longer than a Eurolift. And they had much better outcomes with the Eurolift as opposed to the Resume. Um, I think that as nurses, the with the Eurolift, I used to see people two weeks prior. We used to do a urine check for infection. We used to go over the bladder irritants, which was huge. We used to give them the expectations that you were going to have like the worst urgency and, and terrible symptoms. But with the resume, I felt like the resume, it seemed like it lasted a lot longer. I think that makes a lot of sense because with the resume, they're going to be a healing process from that burn and the, the clips. I don't really think there's much to heal as far as it's like getting a needle almost. Um, what have you found, John, as far as post-op uh, preferences? Or I, I was going to ask, Lori, did you mean that you, uh, you, Eurolift patients had worse irritative symptoms or Resume had worse irritative voiding symptoms? So Resume did. I think okay. that with Resume, I think that I gave the expectations to my patients that Eurolift or Resume, either one, are going to have very bad irritative symptoms. But the resume, it seemed like, you know, with the Eurolift, sometimes, many times, the patient went home without a catheter. Resume, it seemed like they just kept going into retention. We'd take it out a few days. It go, They'd go into retention. It would go on for weeks. It was, it, I, I didn't care for it. So one of the major reasons I don't resume is that it's because I'm very empathetic to the folks, such as my nurses, <laughs> medical assistants. I, I'm I don't want you to keep getting those phone calls, the irritated avoiding symptom phone calls. Uh, even though you can inform the patients beforehand, educate him, they're still going to call you. And guys, as you all know, hate the catheter. So resume, you're guaranteed to have a catheter. Whereas Eurolift, most of my patients do not need a Foley catheter. And uh, that's one of the major reasons I don't resume. It's the irritated voiding symptoms and the need for occasionally prolonged catheterization. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, I have a different uh, spin on it. I do a lot of ultrasonography of the prostate. Um, so we've had enough patients now where I've seen patients that have had resumed on post, you know, years ago. I've had patients that have had TERP, green light laser, and the, the Eurolift. And when you look ultrasonically at a, a TERP, the so-called gold standard or green light, you can see this big open defect. And at least visually, it looks great. Whether they're, they're urinating great or not, visually, it looks like they had something done. The same thing when I see a post-op resume, you do see that big, like almost a TUR defect. If you're blind to what they had done, you might say, oh, did you have a TERP? Because you'll see that defect. I've never seen that with Eurolift. I can see the staples, so I'll, I'll notice, you know, almost like when you do radioactive seeds. But uh, I, I don't know. Does it really translate into symptom differences? I'm not sure. Or yeah, longevity. Co correct. And that, that's one of the dilemmas with BPH. You can have, I've seen, we've all seen older men with huge prostates, and then they're visually obstructive on cystoscopy, but they have minimal to no symptoms. They have no obstruction. They have no retention. How do you explain that? And so when yeah. I see these BPH patients, I tell them how I subjectively feel with my finger 
is very poorly correlated with how you feel when it comes to voiding. The size of your prostate is poorly correlated with how you feel with the way you're voiding. Yeah, I agree with that. I always describe patients, uh, prostate enlargement is like a donut because I like donuts. And I said, sometimes you go and you get a donut, a great big donut isn't a blocking donut. But when you get that donut that you can't get your, get your finger even through the hole, that is inward enlargement. That's causing the symptoms. And patients seem guys, to be able to. Just yeah, go out ahead. of curiosity, how do you guys feel about um, urodynamics before or after a prostate surgery? Um, sometimes we do it beforehand. Um, to look for obstruction. Sometimes we do it afterwards to see if they have an atonic bladder. How do you guys feel about that? Only if you suspect bladder atony. And even with mm. the uh, atony, a lot of times you can assess whether a man can is generating some pressure by asking, are you able to sometimes void on your own? Because a lot of these guys who are self-catheterizing if they're able to void, then I think, okay, well, you're probably generating some pressure. And uh, I'm more of a minimalist. I don't want to spend, a, I, I want to be a guardian of the healthcare dollars. So I don't order a lot of your dynamics. And uh, if, if anything, your cuff may be indicated if you suspect that the bladder is not generating enough pressure. Yeah, I agree. With that. That'll, we be do a, the, that'll be a little cheaper. We've done that as an assessment tool, and it's a, a poor man's urodynamics, I call it. Um, it's not as good, but it does give you some good No, Well, I mean, the, the reality is it gives you some information. Sure. Is it as accurate as a? have done urodynamics for 30 years? So I, I have a prejudice in the, what you can read from it, but a good urodynamic person can get a lot of information. But I agree, you know, it, does everybody need a urodynamics? Absolutely not. I mean, a lot of these guys are coming in now you know, in their early 60s, they're just having, I, I'm tired of getting up all night long. They're not having issues with no stream. You know, if they're somebody who's, you know, comes in in retention and you're worried about that big, you know, you catheterize them and they're carrying a residual of, you know, thousand cc's. Those are the ones you worry, could they have an atonic bladder? And at the very least, I think at least you can tell the patient that, you know, if I do a relieving procedure, whatever it is, you may still not be able to go that I have doubts because of your condition. I think that's fair for the patient to make that decision because some, as you said, some with a poor functioning bladder get rid of the obstruction and they're able to empty reasonably. The other benefit for some of these guys who are self-catheterizing is that when they, when they have a big prostate and they're catheterizing, it's much easier to insert the tip of the catheter into the enlarged prostate and when you have uh, a de-obstructing yeah. procedure like a TURP, it's a lot easier, less traumatic. And as you all know, most of these guys are older, sometimes on anticoagulants, and you don't want, you want to avoid that call. Oh, I yep. stuck a catheter in. Now I have hematuria, clot retention. Now I have to go to the operating room and do a declotting procedure. So yeah. it's all about keeping the patient happy, right? And also keeping him informed of his treatment choices. And that yeah. I would, uh, it, I have switched. I'm one of the guys who have, and, and looking at the latest AUA guidelines from uh, the American Urologic Association, you can offer medication, but medication is, you don't have to start the patients on medication as first line as in previous guidelines. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of my patients don't want to be on medication especially when they 
believe it or not, I have a consent statement that I give to the patient whenever I prescribe a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. Post-finasteride syndrome, permanent erectile dysfunction, right? You can't donate blood, all right? Potential for increased risk of suicidality, uh, suicidality uh, and um, depression. So those are some of the things that you need to consider, including in your documentation before you start the patient on, uh, for instance, finasteride, which is a generic medication that I frequently prescribe. Mm-hmm. Just it's like not, their PSA should be doubled after six months. If they're on finasteride. It should be what? I'm sorry? Doubled. Like their PSA, because their PSA is cut oh, in yeah. half, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing is, although it's been shown to decrease, potentially decrease the risk of prostate cancer, it is also associated with a slightly increased risk of high-grade prostate cancer. So that is all documented in in my note when I prescribe someone a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. Yeah, good good information. We do have a question from Melanie Waddlington. We do both resume and Eurolift. We are finding that a few years after the patient received a Eurolift, they are back for a resume. Our experience has been that the prostate keeps growing over the Eurolift clips and becomes obstructive again. And I have seen that myself too with a few patients um, that have had the Eurolift, that it temporarily works. I do. I certainly do. I, I, I'm one of the, the, the guys, the urologist who has done almost a thousand of these procedures and patient selection is key. So you have to be discriminating when, it, when you're picking the patient for either a resume or a Eurolift or any minimally invasive procedure. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a key point. You have to have more than, you know, if you're going fishing, you better have more than one lure because everything's not going to bite on a, a one particular thing. So you so have to have more if, than one treatment. If you guys are, are if they're saying that um, Eurolift doesn't last as long as resume, how long does resume seem to last compared to the Eurolift? Well, I think I think if you look at the the studies that they've done, they're mm-hmm. essentially they're around the same. It, again, it's depending on the the type of patient selection and the skill of the operator. Uh, the bottom line is you pick the procedure that is that works out best in your hands. The retreatment rate for Eurolift is about fourteen percent in five years, so it's they're re- relatively similar. Yeah. And a resource for the nurse practitioners and physician assistants who are interested in learning more about Eurolift, uh, Eurolift or the Neotrack, the makers of the Eurolift system, hold a BPH summit once in a while. Uh, I think they're holding their second one this year. And there's a there's an APP tract that they can really educate you on how to implement patient selection and expectations. Yeah, yeah that's great. And that may even be something we can look to for Euronurse to bring is to get a company such as Neotrack to come in and present some of that material for one of our talks. I think that that's in my mind, I'm thinking of all the things that we can move forward with Euronurse to be able to provide. And I think that industry, you know, we're not giving contact hours, so we're not in conflict. We can bring anybody we want in to, to talk. We just want to bring in good quality 
people to, you know, we want the experts. That's what we're looking for. And sometimes it's industry. So we may be looking at that in the future to bring industry in along with having a great expert panel is always fantastic. Um, yeah. I don't see any other questions here and we're, by golly, we're hitting that 10 o'clock hour. So at this point, I'm going to go and switch over. Um, again, thanks uh, to John for being willing to volunteer. Look forward to uh, having you in the future sometime pop in here for us. Uh, formally, we'll uh, we'll discuss that. I sent some dates that I had open. I'd love to see if you could fill one of those for me. Uh, Lori, always a pleasure to have you on. You've been one of our longest lasting panelists. Um, Andrea was supposed to be here, who's been also here, but had an unfortunate COVID in the family that she had to go cover for um, to take care of a family member. So it's going around still, folks. That's for sure. Um, hope everybody's enjoying it. If there's any questions you have, feel free to submit those later. Otherwise, come join us at our after party. We're going to switch off here and just click that big button. This is after party. and We'll see whoever wants to come and hang out. All right. Have a great day, everyone. Have a great, safe fourth or Labor Day. Bye-bye Thanks, Vic. Thanks for having me. Great Thanks, forum. Thanks, Dr. Lund.